In this next clip, Dawkins responds to Alex O'Connor's point that Darwin may have solved uh, the mystery of complexity in living things, but not the origin of living things. Question we're trying to answer. We're trying to answer how did the first self-replicating entity come into existence? And that's a big question. It only had to happen once. Unlike the rest of evolution, which where it happened over and over and over again, the same thing happened over and over again, all over the world, different continents, different species, different kinds of animal and plant, and so on. The origin of life could have been a very, very improbable event because it only had to happen once. Uh, and therefore, we are potentially allowed to postulate something very unlikely, something very implausible. I find that quite an interesting point, actually. That, that um, Yes. I mean, if you take it to an extreme, so suppose we are the only planet in the universe which has life, which is, we can't rule that out. I think it's highly unlikely, but we can't rule it out. If that's true, then that means that the origin of life on this planet was a, a, a stupendously improbable event. Mm. And therefore, when chemists try to postulate a possible scenario for the origin of life, they're not looking for a plausible argument. They're looking for a very implausible <laughs> argument. That's fascinating, yeah. Now, I don't believe that because I think that probably it was not that improbable an, an sure. event and therefore and therefore the likelihood is that there's lots of life all over the universe probability versus improbability and uh, dawkins uh, doesn't think the origin of life is all that improbable bill right in my study of the origin of life for my systematic philosophical theology i discovered that among origin of life researchers there tend to be two broad camps called necessitism and contingentism. Necessitism is the belief that somehow the origin of life is built in to the laws of physics and chemistry, and therefore the origin of life is virtually inevitable uh, throughout the universe. It, It had to happen because it's built into the laws of the cosmos. And it would seem, from what he just said, that Dawkins tends to favor this necessitism. On the other hand, there is contingentism, which says that the origin of life is an event that is highly contingent. Uh, It is therefore highly, highly improbable uh, and very unlikely to, uh, to recur. Uh, And probably most origin-of-life researchers would fall into the contingentist camp. Now, what is so fascinating about this, Kevin, is that each camp accuses the other of having a hidden theological (laughs) agenda. The contingentists accuse the necessitists of believing that God has designed the universe Uh, so that it will be uh, life-producing, that it's built right into the laws of nature, and that this is the intention of a cosmic creator, that the universe would be anthropocentric. And so these necessitists are really closet theists. On the other hand, the necessitists say these contingentists posit the occurrence of an event of unimaginable improbability. Uh, If the origin of life did occur as they say it did, it would have been a miracle. And therefore, they're actually closet creationists believing in a divine miracle to bring about the existence of life. So both of these 
Camps accuses the other of actually being closet theists. And the theist <laughs> kind of sits back and, and smiles uh, at this uh, whole debate between contingencies and necessitists. What is interesting is that both camps then, in order to explain the origin of life, wind up appealing to the resources of outer space. The necessitists say that if life is built into the very laws of nature, then it should originate not simply on this planet, but also elsewhere in the cosmos. And so they are very interested in astrobiology, searching for biological signatures on the residue of asteroids, meteorites, and comets. Unfortunately, to date, no such traces of life anywhere in the universe uh, have been found. On the other hand, the contingentists, in order to make the probability of the origin of life on Earth tractable, have to appeal to the resources of outer space, that there are so many planets in the universe that surely, out of all of these, somewhere one of them would have life originate on it by chance alone, given this multiplication of probabilistic resources. In fact, at the most extreme, these contingentists will appeal to our old friend, the multiverse, to explain the origin of life by chance. Namely, in an infinite ensemble of worlds, anything will happen, and indeed it will happen infinitely many times over. So in an infinite multiverse, life would have to originate uh, again and again, infinite number of times, and we happen to be on one such planet. Unfortunately, this uh, appeal to wider probabilistic resources really backfires on the contingentist. And you have here a kind of analog to the Boltzmann brain problem that arises for those who try to explain away the fine-tuning of the universe on the basis of the multiverse. Namely, in a universe that is so vast uh, that virtually anything will happen somewhere, the question arises, how do we know that life forms on this planet did not evolve at all, but just sprang into being perfect and complete, whole and entire. The contingentist cannot say, well, that's too highly improbable. That, that just can't happen because in an infinite universe, anything can happen <laughs> anywhere. And so he ultimately shoots himself in the foot and undermines his own uh, point of view. The fact is, Kevin, that origin of life research is, is stalemated. Uh, we have no understanding of how life originated on this planet, no indication that it came from outer space. And so really this remains one of probably the greatest mysteries of contemporary science. In this next clip, Alex O'Connor refers to a C.S. Lewis illustration by sort of borrowing and adapting something C.S. Lewis said. Lewis talks about the relationship between Hamlet and Shakespeare. I can ask, why did Sherlock Holmes move into Baker Street? And you can either say, well, it's because, uh, you know, he was looking for a roommate or, or something like that. Or you could say, 
because Arthur Conan Doyle wanted him to. And both of those seem to be true in a different resolution of thought. Now, what I'm imagining here is us discovering Hamlet by Shakespeare on the table in front of us. And immediately, crudely, you look at it and say, well, that must have been designed. That must have an author. And I don't just do the William Paley thing. You know, it's complex. What I say is, well, look, Professor Dawkins, I, I've, I've done some research onto this little book and I've discovered that it obeys certain laws. You know, I, I've noticed that at the end of certain sentences, there are these little dots. It usually means that it's the end of a sentence. Also, we've discovered this thing called iambic pentameter. You know, it, it seems that the way these sentences are constructed seem to follow this law, this law of literacy. And I said to you, now, where did this book come from? And you say, I still think there was an author of this book. I still think someone created it. And I said, yeah, but look at all the progress that we've made just by describing it in terms of these things that we're calling laws of literature. I've discovered all of these laws of literature, iambic pentameter and sentence construction and grammar and all of this stuff. Surely one day these laws of literacy will, will go on to explain the origin of the laws of the literacy or, or the origin of the text itself. Surely that would be where this is going. But of course, I'm making a, a category error if I do that. And is there not a, a fear that we're doing that when we say that science will one day explain the origin of the very thing that science is about. I suppose what I'm putting forward is that maybe laws of physics, laws of biology, laws of science are not the kind of thing that can explain the origin of the laws of physics, the origin of the laws of biology, that kind of stuff. Well, it could be. I mean, we, we haven't got there yet. But, but what, all, all, all I said was that, that Darwin's success should give us confidence mm. and that there will come a time when we understand the laws of physics. I think we're not far off. I'm not really, I mean, the physicists aren't far off that now, in, in fact. Mm. The laws of literature don't account for the origin of literature. But Dawkins says, yeah, but uh, Darwin gave us confidence, Bill. Yeah, this is not even to mention uh, the information that is contained in the script of Hamlet, the biological information, for example, in the genetic code. Well, now, Dawkins' point here, frankly, Kevin, is just silly. Origin of life studies and evolutionary biology are different fields of science. Uh, they are not the same. Uh, the evolutionary uh, complexity of life is to be explained on the basis of biology and biochemistry, but the origin of life itself can't be explained in those terms. It has to be explained purely in terms of organic or carbon compounds uh, which are inanimate uh, and inert and not alive. You have to explain how in the world these things would uh, come to life and produce the first living cell. And Darwin's success in the field of evolutionary biology doesn't provide any confidence whatsoever in this very different field of chemistry and the chemical origin of life. Rather, the relevant comparison for success should be to look at what advances have been made in origin of life research. Uh, since, for example, the famous experiments uh, by Stanley Miller in 1953 at the University of Chicago when he synthesized uh, amino acids, uh, there has been no progress in origin of life research in understanding how the macromolecules essential to life uh, came about, much less how they formed themselves into a, a living cell. So the, the field is, is not a progressing field, and that should be where we measure our confidence, and it does not inspire confidence that this mystery is about to be unlocked. In fact, I was struck 
that Dawkins himself says in um, one of his books that our understanding of the origin of life is still basically at the same point that it was when Darwin wrote The Origin of Species in 1859. (laughs) Uh, That does not inspire confidence that we are on the verge of unlocking this mystery. (laughs) I was going to ask you, Bill, if you heard echoes of Richard Swinburne in that illustration that uh, they were using. If you were to ask why uh, Sherlock Holmes had this in his garage, uh, (laughs) one answer would be, well, because he wanted it in his garage, and the other answer would be because uh, the author crafted this and put it in there. Yes, one is, is answering within the story world, and the other one steps outside of the world of the story and asks, uh, how do you account for this thing? Where does it come from? Yeah. And I noticed, Kevin, uh, Alex O'Connor asked Dawkins, if he thought that anybody had offered any good arguments in any of his debates. And I immediately thought of Richard Swinburne in that recent dialogue that you and I did a podcast on, where Swinburne just takes Dawkins apart. And yet Dawkins, in his response to O'Connor, says, no, I've never heard any good arguments for God's existence. And he thinks he's won every debate, despite what... I think most of us know happened not only with Swinburne, with with John Lennox as well. Um, so yeah, there are echoes here, I think, of other, other thinkers. In this clip, Dawkins has asked if he would like to revise The God Delusion, his book. The God Delusion, which was the atheist book, do you think it still survives as a sufficient treatment of God and religion in modern culture, if you were to write it again, would you be taking the same approach of talking about it as a scientific issue, or would you feel the need to, to change the way that you're talking about I, the subject I, I would altogether? certainly still talk about it as a scientific issue, because I think that's, that's the most important thing. I probably might add a chapter on the idea of uh, well, what Dan Dennett calls belief in belief, the, the idea that whether you believe it or not, it's a good idea that some people do. And, and I think that's patronizing. I think that's condescending. It's, it's sort of saying, well, we intellectuals don't need this crutch, but other people may do. And if they do, then it's a good thing because it helps in the battle against Putin. I think, I think Voltaire said, uh, I don't believe in God, but I hope that my maid does. Well, that's an, I didn't know that quote. It's a very good example. And that, that is so patronizing. I suspect that Alex is politely dropping a hint that uh, the God delusion is inadequate. But Dawkins says he'd he'd only add a chapter on belief in belief, Bill. Yeah, O'Connor's question was, does the God delusion survive? And in light of the many criticisms uh, of this book, I don't think that it does survive very well. Uh, I have laid out some of these uh, in my article, uh, Dawkins' Delusion, and I've given a a lecture on this at the Sheldonian Theater in Oxford University uh, that you can access uh, on YouTube to see how uh, one might respond to Dawkins' critique of the theistic arguments. And and I think his book very clearly uh, fails. The central argument in The God Delusion is a logical mess. Um, and I don't think Dawkins even realizes it. Part of the, the problem here is that 
a scholar has a certain intellectual obligation to respond to his critics so that when other scientists or philosophers offer criticisms of your your view, you need to be forthcoming in responding to those criticisms. And Richard Dawkins hasn't fulfilled that intellectual obligation. I, I think he's been professionally negligent in this regard. He simply continues to repeat his arguments as though they had never been responded to. And in light of the many responses, by both theists and atheists alike, I do not think that the God delusion survives. Well, let's get to the juicy stuff, Bill. What Dawkins says about you, Alex asks him about public debates. I mean, the sort of professional debaters on, on behalf of religion, uh, people like William Craig, I've, I have no time for him. I mean, he's, he, he, he's got this sort of loud, rather pompous voice and, and, and um, he says that's a premise one, deduction two, and things like that. And, and the audience, <laughs> I suppose, is supposed to be impressed. I, <laughs> I've had, I've had uh, William Lane Craig twice on, on my podcast and I always had a good experience with him. Having said that, I didn't debate him. I don't know what that would be like. It, it's something you're not interested in doing, debating William Lane Craig? Or, or having well, I a have conversation done. perhaps with William Lane Craig? I, I have done. Um, I, I've vowed not to. I, I, I feel such contempt for him because of his. I don't know whether you've seen his what he says, says about the Something Israelites about... slaughtering the Midianites, and, and, and instead of saying what any decent theologian would say, well, it never happened, um, uh, and it was, this is just an Old Testament story. Um, he says, um, well, the Midianites had it coming uh, because they were so sinful, and then if you worry about the Midianite children who had their brains beaten out of them. Um, that's okay, because they went straight to heaven. And, and that, that finished him, him off as far as I was concerned. Now, um, for me, I actually wrote a, a piece in The, in the Guardian saying why I will, I will never have anything to do with him. Well, no surprises there, Bill. Um, a right. personal attack. And I think he's referring to the Canaanites. Right. He is referring to my defense of uh, God's command to the Israelite armies to go in and drive the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan, to divest them of the land, and to kill anyone who attempted to re remain behind uh, in, in the land. Um, what's interesting about this complaint by Dawkins is that he thinks it's pompous for me to explain or, or lay out the premises logically of my argument he thinks that this is intended to impress people. And what's funny to me about this, Kevin, is that I actually used to hide the logical structure of my arguments. When I first began to speak on university campuses years ago, I would uh, attempt to conceal the logical structure of my arguments by uh, presenting them more in a narrative form because I thought people would be put off by the formality and the dryness of a logical presentation and would find a narrative presentation more entertaining. But what I discovered was that people really like to hear the logical structure of the argument stated clearly. You see, the purpose of doing this is not to try to impress people, but rather it is for the purpose of enhancing 
clarity. Uh, it's saying, here are my premises. Uh, in fact, you're doing a real favor to your opponent because what you're saying is uh, there are two premises to my argument. Here they are. And if you can shoot down either one of these premises, then my argument fails. So which premise do you reject and why? It's really an attempt to bring clarity. So the issue that he's raising here with Alex O'Connor is presumably not the adequacy of my defense of uh, the consistency of God's being all loving and all knowing and issuing this command to bring judgment upon the Canaanite tribes by driving them out of the land on the pain of death. Dawkins has never responded to my ethical defense of that uh, position. Instead, he just reacts emotionally to it. So the real issue here is not the adequacy of my defense uh, of that biblical story. Rather, the issue is, why has Dawkins refused to debate me uh, over and over again? Why has he issued a parade of changing excuses for why he won't engage in a debate with me after boasting earlier on that he would debate anyone uh, at any time, anywhere? Uh, it appears that all of these excuses that he gives are just hypocritical. Uh, Peter Byram, who was himself once a, a follower of uh, Dawkins, has uh, charted these, made a video about them, and he counts somewhere around 10 different excuses that Dawkins has used over the years for refusing to debate, including things like that Craig is not uh, a bishop or a cardinal, someone important, or that Craig is a creationist, or I'm busy, uh, or Craig is a professional debater. Uh, and he has latched now upon this article that I wrote defending the biblical story of the judgment on the Canaanites uh, and, and said that he will not debate me because of the immorality of the position uh, that I take. This shifting parade of excuses even came to the attention, believe it or not, Kevin, of private eye magazine, um, which did an article on all of these different uh, shifting excuses. Now, you might think, why in the world would a detective magazine be interested in this story? And I think it is because if someone who is uh, accused in a court of law keeps issuing changing and inconsistent alibis, then his credibility is undermined and you really begin to put him under suspicion. Uh, and that's exactly the sort of pattern of behavior that we've seen exhibited by Professor Dawkins. And in this next clip, Alex presses Dawkins on debating you. Listen to this. I think that um, as particularly at the height of the, the new atheism and religion debates that were happening in, in the in the sort of late 2000s, I think a lot of people were disappointed that the forerunner of the atheist side, Richard Dawkins, and arguably the forerunner of the Christian side, William Lane Craig, never came together to have that debate. Because even if 
you do think that what he believes there is particularly and, and, and specifically evil. I suppose everything you've just said to me, people would probably just like to see you say that to William Lane Craig. I wrote an article in The Guardian saying it, um, and um, I did in fact have a debate with him in Mexico, I forget mm. when. Um, with, uh, with the boxing ring? Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> I just know desire to, to um, yeah. I, I don't respect him. I, did, I, I, I find his manner pompous and, and I, I just don't, don't want to be in the same room as him, really. Well, in, in the interest of diplomacy, I will offer no further comment, except that that's, that's certainly not my experience with the man. But um, okay, I, I, I imagine that we've, uh, we've had very different uh, interactions with him in the mm -hmm. past, let's put it that way. Well, that's the second time that Alex compliments you, Bill, but Dawkins is not changing his mind. Yeah, I really appreciate Alex O'Connor's compliment. And I have to say, if you watch this entire interview that he does with Dawkins. Alex O'Connor just shreds Dawkins' excuses in a very gentle and kind way. He just dismantles Dawkins, and Dawkins is reduced to stammering uh, at, at the end. What O'Connor shows is that Dawkins has debated people who hold the same position on the Canaanite judgment that I do, like John Lennox, He's fastened upon this judgment on the Canaanites because it affords him the perfect excuse. It allows him to assume the moral high ground and to look down on his opponent as contemptible uh, and beneath uh, consideration, not worthy of debating because of his immoral status. So it's the perfect excuse because it allows Dawkins to posture as the morally superior person um, and the other person is morally contemptible. One more clip. Alex asked Dawkins about C.S. Lewis's question regarding why we seem to be made for another world. Why would we evolve a desire for something which does not exist? Here's Dawkins' response. The idea that because you want something, therefore it must be true, I find that a most extraordinary idea. It, it, it does seem strange to want something that doesn't exist. Why? Because if we're trying to give an account of where this desire comes from, it seems to have to latch onto something. And it seems like what you're suggesting is that what it's latching onto is just the general desire to stay alive as long as possible. Well, that, that I was thinking specifically of the desire for eternal life, sure. but, but I think you can do a kind of a version of that for whatever else C.S. Lewis was was, was saying hmm. uh, some people may have a, a, a sexual desire for for a film star that they're never going to meet and wouldn't look at them if they did and that doesn't mean that there's anything realistic about it it's 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 a natural extension of sexual desire of course the film star exists <laughs> that he said that kind of fast in case anybody missed it alex says yeah but the the movie star exists nevertheless dawkins thinks desire for god is just an evolved projection and reaction to fear of death. Yeah, this is just one more example of Alex O'Connor's acuity uh, yeah. and uh, insight. He, he just exposes Dawkins here uh, as not even understanding the argument and so gives this inept uh, response about fantasizing about a movie star when, in fact, the movie star does exist. Uh, it actually bears out Lewis's argument from desire. Hmm. Bill, as we wrap up today, 
Richard Dawkins' book and his lack of philosophical sophistication has been widely criticized, but he seems to have some staying power. Uh, any concluding thoughts on these interview excerpts that we've looked at? Well, Dawkins does seem to be hanging on, uh, doesn't he? I, I think his day has passed. Um, his material has been subject to severe criticism by both theists and fellow atheists alike, and I think that the fanfare of the new atheism is quickly fading. And so I, I hope that he will continue to do these sorts of interviews with people like Alex O'Connor, because I think that O'Connor, far more effectively than any Christian apologist, exposes the inconsistency and the weaknesses that are endemic to Professor Dawkins' positions. 